I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 17, verses 17 through 24 in the text of Scripture this morning. Uh, the last two sermons in 1 Corinthians, we received marriage counseling from the Apostle Paul. You remember up in verse 1, he starts uh, chapter 7 in this way. It says, now concerning. And he goes on to tell us that in verses 1 through 24, he's going to be dealing with marriage and things related to marriage relationship. If you look in your Bible, chapter 7, verse 25, you see he repeats that same statement, now concerning the betrothed or those who are engaged. And in verses 25 through 40, he'll have some things to say about singleness or those who find themselves without a spouse. And so... Um, Paul has been uh, giving us information in the last two weeks then about the marriage relationship. And it's been interesting to me that in some of the answers that Paul gives to the Corinthian questions about marriage, he actually answers some of our questions too. In particular, if you were here last Sunday morning and Sunday night, you know that he helped us especially with knowing how to deal with uh, the reality of being in a difficult marriage relationship. So that in this text, he tells some of the Corinthian believers who are wondering uh, whether they could divorce their spouse if their spouse was divorced or was uh, an unbeliever. Paul says, you need to remain married to them even if they're an unbeliever. For you never know what sort of influence you'll be able to have upon the the home and and that person. He also explains near the end of chapter 7, in verses 15 through 16, that we should not initiate a divorce with our spouse. Believers should not initiate divorces with their spouse. Although we can let them go if our spouse goes down to the law courts and demands a divorce. As a matter of fact, near the end of that text, he uh, gives us a reason for that. At the very end of verse 15, he says, because God has called you to peace. It's with that word called that Paul begins into the section that we're going to be dealing with today. In 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through 24, do you know that Paul uses the word, the verb called eight different times? As we read through it, you'll be able to see it often. He uses a verb called eight times. He uses a noun form of the word call, calling one time in verse 20. So that he returns to this concept of God's call frequently. However, when someone speaks of the calling of God, a lot of different images come to our mind. So it's very important at the beginning of the sermon to define what Paul means when he says call throughout our text. In my opinion, as you go through these verses, when Paul uses that term, he is speaking of the Christian's call or summons to salvation and Christian service. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, God is the one who is always doing the calling. And his calling, at least in this text, always has to do, deal with him calling you to salvation and to the Christian life that follows it. So if you look down in your Bible at verse 17, we see that God's call is, the, is for the believer to lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. 
See that there? And to which God has called him. Now, when you think about it, God has called all of us, if we know Jesus Christ as follower of his, in the midst of some pretty diverse situations in life. One member will leave church today in his beat-up economy car. He will drive himself home to his one-bedroom apartment to prepare for the week that God has assigned for him. Wake himself up at 6 a.m., go to work, and try to serve God faithfully in the workplace. Another member will gather her children from the four corners of the earth, right? No, the, the different rooms across the church campus. And she'll somehow get them all into her family minivan. On Monday, she makes all the children's lunches, wakes them up, and sends them away to school, or in some cases, does the schooling herself. Another member of Colonial Baptist Church will listen to this sermon online because she is no longer healthy enough to attend. All of her events this week will take, will take place within the walls of her assisted living home. Other members will serve God this week in the shipyard or at a base or at a site or in the office. We have members in apartments, townhomes, beachside condos, suburbia estates, and countryside farms. You see, God's call to salvation and walking the Christian life has come to us while in the midst of very different life stations and locations. And Paul's challenge to the Corinthian church in this text is to stay put and serve God well where you are. Regardless of your situation. Now, the way Paul arranges this text, in my opinion, verses 17 through 24, is he starts with a guiding life principle in verse 17, and then he gives two illustrations or discussions of different statuses or conditions that believers might find themselves in verses 18 through 24. So he's going to talk about our religious status and our social or vocational status in the text here today. So uh, let's go and look first at the guiding principle in verse 17. Verse 17 says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. This verse is extremely important for believers. I set it out to you as, as like a header for the rest of the text. It's a guiding principle from Paul the Apostle to help us in the sort of situations we might find ourselves in life. For as temporal beings, we need to be content to remember that we must glorify God wherever he places us. You see, life is not all about me, right? I heard a wise man once say that. Life is not all about me but it's about honoring and glorifying God in my temporal life for his honor and his glory. Paul calls this idea of, of living the life that God assigns you the universal rule that he uses in all of his churches. You see that in verse 17? 
What that means to me is that this is not a new phenomenon or experience. If some of the Corinthians were were asking Paul if they should change up their marital status so that they might better glorify God or change up their job or change up their religious heritage, Paul says, you really need to be concerned to live the life that God assigns me. And this is not a new struggle. I mean, other believers and the other churches that I work with have the same sort of struggle as you. And to this day, isn't it true that Many believers, many believers struggle with the regular temptation to change things up. You know, the, 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 the old adage, the grass is always greener where? So you got it, on the other side of the fence. So in verse 17, Paul gives a guiding principle stressing that God gives assignments to believers for, to follow. I mean, this verse stresses the fact that God has a plan for each one of us. And we must strive to live the life that he has for us. After that guiding principle, in the remainder of the section, Paul gives two parallel illustrations regarding status. Their religious status and their vocational or their social status And he does this to help the Corinthians with their marriage status. I think this is what's going on. I mean, why else would Paul give us four verses in the text about slavery when he's talking about marriage? Okay, now that's when every, you know, every one of us have a joke we want to, you know, infuse at this point. But we're not going to go there. I mean, why does he have all this discussion about circumcision and uncircumcision? Why all this discussion about slavery or freedom from a master or not? What is going on here? Well, he's giving us two illustrations of different types of status that Corinthian believers enjoy, both religious heritage and status, and vocational status to help them answer questions about whether or not they should stay committed to their spouse or whether or not they should go get married in the first place. And so I want to work through these with you. First, we look at religious status, verses 18 through 20. Look with me at verse 18. Paul says, Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. One of the things I want you to see in your Bible is I want you to compare verses 18 through 20 to verses 21 through 24 because Paul arranges these two illustrations in the exact same way. Both texts start out with a question that Paul asked about one of those statuses. And that question leads him to give some opening counsel or a quick answer, okay? After he gives his quick answer in both of those texts, you'll see in the words that are underlined in verse 19 and verse 22 that Paul also then gives a justification for the counsel that he's giving. Paul's got some things he's going to say about whether you're a Jew or Gentile or bear the outward marks of either, and then he, he justifies it by giving us this statement in verse 19. 
He's got some things to say about your social status too. And then he justifies his answer or counsel in verse 22. As a matter of fact, one of the things that first put me on to the pattern here is near the end of the text, his final conclusion in both texts is the exact same word, remain. Remain. And so if you're following along in your Bible, I've got the same exact outline for the, these two illustrations. Let me work through uh, them with you. Verses 18 and 19, we see the opening counsel of Paul about religious status. Verse 18, Paul instructs or admonishes them through question and answer. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Here's my answer. Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Answer, let him not seek circumcision. In verse 18 here, Paul asks two questions about whether a believer was circumcised or not. I think all the questions from the Corinthians about whether they should change up their marital status has led Paul to speak about how someone might want to change up their status regarding religion or religious heritage. Some Gentiles might be tempted to change the external marks of their heritage in order to appear to be more Jewish, to be accepted by God. Paul says, don't do it. Some Jewish believers might be tempted to change up the external marks of their religious heritage in order to, be, to appear to be more Gentile for some reason. And Paul says, don't do that either. That leads us in verse 19 to his justification for such a counsel. I mean, and, and when you get into this justification, I mean, this is shocking stuff to a Jew. The justification comes in verse 19 when he says, for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. This first statement here of Paul's justification would be something that would horrify a Jewish person in the first century. He says that circumcision is nothing. That is, that it accomplishes nothing before God. Now, for Paul to make a statement like this in a letter that may be read by some Jewish people, this degradation of their holy right of circumcision would be devastating. They'd be horrified. And yet Paul offers this as a reason why believers don't need to be concerned with their outward marks or external marks of religiosity. It simply does not matter to God because it doesn't count for anything. Notice as well that Paul writes that while circumcision and uncircumcision don't matter at all, keeping God's commandments does. What does that mean? You'll have to flip over in your notes if you're following your notes. I've got this discussion of what does that phrase mean, but keeping God's commandments. A Jew would be mystified by this statement totally confused because circumcision was one of the most important commandments for them that Moses gave them in Genesis chapter 17. I mean, so I mean, imagine if you're a Jew hearing this, okay, Paul says, well, circumcision doesn't matter anymore, but what you need to do is you need to keep the commandments of God. A Jew would say, isn't that one of the commandments? I mean, how am I supposed to follow that? Or what do you mean? 
Okay, and so what I'd like to do is just briefly talk to you about that phrase, keeping the commandments of God and what that means. There are different ways of explaining it. Some people believe that what Paul is doing here is he's saying, you know what? You don't have to keep the law of Moses in its entirety anymore. Okay, that the commandments here might be referred to Moses' commandments, the Ten Commandments, but that he is just basically pointing out the fact that you only now need to keep the weightier or the more significant parts of the Mosaic Law. Some people divide up the Mosaic Law into three parts, the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral parts of the Law of Moses. And then once they divide it up, they'll say something like this. As a New Testament believer in Jesus Christ, I don't have to follow all of the laws or the commandments given by Moses because some of them were only for Israel. They affected their civil life or their ceremonial life. But what I need to do is I need to find out where the moral parts of God's law to Moses are, and then I need to follow those. Have you ever heard anything like that before? Okay, so some people will go through this text and say, you know what, when Paul says circumcision doesn't matter, but we need to keep God's commandments, that that's the sort of thing that he's doing. He's putting circumcision as one of the commandments that are no longer relevant or necessary for a believer to follow, something like what some people would do with the Sabbath. Some people suggest that because of Jesus, Christians today don't need to honor the Sabbath on a Saturday because that's not part of the timeless moral law of God that he gives to us. However, I've got a different way of explaining this. I explain this text a bit differently. God's commandments might be something entirely different than Moses' commandments. So to get our answer, we're going to look at the text, right? Because that's where we try to find all of our answers. Do you know that the phrase at the beginning part of verse 19, this is where we're at, we're verse 19. The beginning phrase in verse 19 is repeated two other times by Paul the apostle. And so what I'd like to do or suggest is that these other texts might actually help us know how to interpret this. So for instance, in Galatians 6 and verse 15 on the left side of the chart, it says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Sound familiar? But, I mean, we're like word perfect at that point. He changes it here, but a new creation. In this text, Paul replaces the external act of circumcision with what God has made out of believers in Jesus Christ. We are entirely a new creation, so circumcision doesn't matter anymore. We're a new creation. Perhaps even more helpful to us is the text on the other side of the chart, Galatians 5 and verse 6. It says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Does that sound familiar? but only faith working through love. It appears here that what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 5 is that faith working through love is the new commandments that believers should follow. And so what I'm suggesting to you is those things that I've underlined at the bottom of the chart are all roughly equivalent to each other. That what Paul then means by keeping the commandments of God is that we would, through genuine faith in Jesus Christ, as true followers of him and him alone, demonstrate love to each other. This also sounds to me much like 
what Christ himself said about the original intention of the law of Moses anyway. Matter of fact, turn in your Bibles just for a second to Matthew chapter 22. And I want to hear from Jesus on what the law of Moses was intending anyway. And what is significant or what was most significant about the law of Moses. So Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. If you remember, someone came to Christ and asked him a very difficult question about the law. Let's hear from him and his answer. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great or the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Here in this text, Christ teaches that the law is fulfilled, the law of Moses is fulfilled by those who love God and love others genuinely. So keeping God's commandments, back in 1 Corinthians 7, keeping God's commandments means the commandments as Jesus communicated them to us. Loving God and loving others out of genuine faith. Out of genuine faith. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 7 for a moment. Paul's point is that outward signs of religious status aren't important. And just as changing one's religious status is not important, the external marks of it, there is no need to change one's marital status either. All people, regardless of their marital status, can serve God well right where they are. And that's one of the points he's making. That leads to that opening counsel, leads to a final conclusion in verse 20. Look at verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. The word remain here is very important because it's a conclusion here and it's a conclusion in the next illustration that we'll see in just five or ten minutes. Believers must be content to remain where they are. I mean, the good news is that God has redeemed us as believers where we are with our own peculiarities in order that we might serve him. Christians do not need to change their life situation in order to serve God. So the first illustration is religious status. The second one is social status, verses 21 through 24. And I think you'll find this one to be even more relevant and helpful for us today. Look at verse 21. Were you a bondservant when called? Could be some text translated slave. Do not be concerned about it. That's Paul's quick answer. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers... In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain 
with God. So he starts again with opening counsel in verses 21 through 23, and uh, he starts that counsel by giving instruction or admonition in verse 21. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned with it. I like how two commentators have really helped me to understand this question in verse 21. Uh, Their last names are Rasna and Champa. They write this. They say, some may have wondered, isn't my ability to honor and serve God profoundly compromised by the fact that I live the life of a slave? As I look around, Paul, there are other people who have freedom. They're, They're not under an earthly master. Isn't my ability to serve God well impacted by the fact that I'm a slave? So Paul's answer is that your status at work does not matter to God. As a matter of fact, a sovereign God may have called you to represent him in your difficult work situation for his honor and glory. Men and women, sometimes people who work difficult blue-collar jobs, for instance, are tempted to think that they need to change jobs if they're going to serve God well. They think that, you know, I need to be like in full-time Christian ministry or something if I'm going to really serve God. But Paul's text here contradicts that notion. Contradicts it. We should never change up our status because we argue that it is impossible to please God where we are. I mean, Paul charges slaves not to be concerned with their social status. The parenthesis in verse 21 is also very interesting, isn't it? You see, the the parenthesis there in verse 21 is where Paul explains that if a believing slave under physical master was offered his freedom, he should take the opportunity. Take the opportunity. I mean, get out of the the relationship if you can. Freedom from this demeaning position would itself be a blessing. I want you to understand here very quickly that the Bible is not condoning or in any way endorsing slavery. It never does in any of his pages. Even if it's the more moderate form of slavery that's found in their Greco-Roman culture versus our, our American history. The Bible never con- condones it. The Bible never endorses it. But what Paul is saying here, it, what he's simply ex- explaining is that it was not necessary for a slave to be freed in order to serve God well. One of the things I want to suggest here as we make application to our own lives and our own workplace is that we should uh, consider or think through job changes and promotions. And I, I just want to be really clear on this. As I read this through this sermon to some of the seminary students last night, uh, many of them pressed me on the question of, well, what about a promotion? Because it seems like, you know, Paul's saying, like, remain <laughs> where you are. You can never do anything. You never go anywhere. You can never just stay there. It's like, should I leave the auditorium or just remain, you know? Um, and so uh, I want to give you just a few applications about promotions here. First of all, I want to just clearly say I don't believe that God is against promotions in the workplace. I do think that God would have us consider our motivations, though, in wanting a promotion. And I do believe that God would have us 
engage in good conversations with other people, hopefully within the body of Jesus Christ, about when we are offered those sort of things and opportunities present themselves. So that's one application. God is not against promotions. But the second application I just want to be clear with for us as a church is we should not desire to change it up because we think that's impossible or difficult to serve God where we are. Okay, so like if that's the motive behind your desire for promotion, that's a problem because that's the Corinthian error. That's what some of the Corinthian believers were possibly suggesting about their marital status or their economic, economic status. The text clearly says that you can indeed serve God where you are. So this text is not against promotions, but against wanting promotions or changes because we're defeated or discontent where we are. We can serve God where we are. So that's Paul's instruction. You don't need to change your vocational status. He then justifies it in verses 22 and 23 with this statement. He gives two reasons why freedom from earthly physical slavery was not required in order to serve God. Look down in your Bible, verse 22. I mean, it's right there. He says, for he who is called, or he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he was free when called as a bondservant of Christ. You're bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Paul gives these two reasons why slaves don't need to matter about, don't need to worry about if they're going to be able to get rid of their work status. The first one is Christ frees believers who are bondservants from a much greater slavery than they experience at the workplace. Outside of Christ, all people are enslaved to the powers of evil, sin, death, and hell. And Christ frees anyone who will place their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. You may be here this morning and have never trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your deliverance from the powers of evil, sin, death, and hell. The Bible is very clear that all men are sinners and are sentenced to death because of it, and that that death leads to hell forever and ever, for all eternity. And the Bible is also clear that there is not deliverance or salvation in any other person or name other than Jesus Christ. So if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, you might be free physically today, but you are enslaved spiritually. Death has you. You will die. And hell has you unless you turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul reminds these slaves, these bondservants, yes, you were enslaved physically, but you've been freed from something far worse. Spiritual slavery. So since Christ has freed you from those powers, you can serve him faithfully despite any condition you find yourself in in this world, on this planet. The second reason he gives them is, 
even free believers, you know, those not serving under earthly masters, even free believers are enslaved to Christ. I mean, I'm just like reading to verses 22 and 23. Christ brought, bought all of us believers with a great price, so we must serve him now. Paul's basically saying these texts is even if you're free from physical earthly slavery, you're still a slave. You're never free entirely. You are now servants of Jesus Christ. This text is Paul's opening counsel to the Corinthians. And then he follows that in verse 24 with his final conclusion regarding their social status. Look in your Bible at verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. Paul says the brothers and sisters in Christ should remain content in the calling that God has given to them. This is the same conclusion that he has come to many different times in the text. You've got your text right in front of you. Look with me. Look up at verse 8 while I just point you to the fact that this word remain is used all throughout the text. I mean, it starts here and it doesn't end here. It just keeps going in chapter 7. He keeps saying, remain, 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 remain. And so as you look in your Bibles at verse 8, regarding whether unmarried people and widows should get married, Paul counsels them to remain single in verse 8. In verse 11, regarding whether a woman who divorces her husband can get remarried, Paul says that she has two choices. Either remain, verse 11, remain as you are, unmarried, or be reconciled to your former spouse. Regarding whether believers should change up external marks of their religious allegiances to Judaism, Paul says that they should remain as they were when God called them in verse 20. Look at verse 20. He's got the word there, remain as you are. And then finally here, regarding whether believers should worry about their social or vocational status, Paul says that they should remain where they are and serve God well in verse 24. So if you're here today and you say, I didn't really like Pastor Brent's sermon today. He just kept saying stuff like, remain, stay put, you know, chill out, stay there. That's like ridiculous. Well, you can at least see that I got it from the text, right? <laughs> it says it over and over again. So if you've got a problem this morning, uh, your problem should be with me, not with Paul. Although I'm really just telling you what he said. Remain as you are. And it is possible to remain in our present condition because as we remain, look at the very end of verse 24, as we remain, God is there with us. Or as one commentator translated, if I were to translate it, I would, I would translate it this way. Remain there with God at your side. God at your side. Read from the book of Joshua, we're, we're, in, for a scripture reading this morning where God tells Joshua, I'm going to be there with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. So men and women, as I make application to our church here in, conclu- in, in conclusion, whatever station you have at work, God is at your side. Perhaps God has you in your job because you're the only believer there. I say, don't be, don't be too quick to bolt. God might have you there for a reason. Check your motives. 
you can serve God there. Don't believe that you must change your job before you can serve God well. Whatever accommodations you have at home, an apartment, townhome, condo, home, God is there with you. You don't need a better home before you can serve God well. God might actually have you on that cul-de-sac or in that apartment to reach your neighborhood for Jesus Christ. Now, you can move. I'm not saying you can't move, but check your motive. You can serve God well where you are and use your pre- God may use your presence and your witness on that cul-de-sac or in that complex to point people to him. And finally, of course, no matter what marital status God has currently assigned to you, single, married to a believer, married to an unbeliever, separated, divorced, widow, widower, God is with you. God is with you. You can serve God well where you're at. You don't need to change these stations or statuses in order to serve God well. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of working through this text of Scripture. Lord, there is perhaps a part of all of us that sometimes gets frustrated with our present statuses. Lord, may you give us wisdom and counsel to be able to interpret the conditions in which we find ourselves. Would you give us wisdom about our motives as we open up to other believers here about those situations? And Lord, may we never make the Corinthian error saying, things have to change so that I can serve God well. Lord, may we see that your grace is sufficient to help any person in the room amid any status or location to serve you well if they know Christ as Savior. We pray that you would remind us this day of your great presence. In Jesus' name, amen.